Hello, Firecrackers. I'm Isabel. I'm the founder and firebrand of the Uprising Spark, the hostess of the Honest Upper podcast, and I'm a life purpose igniter who helps child free women coming to their own and become the very best version of themselves. This week, I decided to shake up things a little and be on the other side of the microphone. So I invited a very special someone to come and interview me. I did not know what the questions were going to be before our interview as a treat to myself and to my listeners, because this week I'm also celebrating two things. We're celebrating the Uprising Sparks first year anniversary, and it's my birthday. So here it is. Enjoy. Welcome to The Honest Uproar, a podcast where modern, child-free women share their life stories and where we discuss important topics for the kid-free community. I'm Isabel, your host and founder and firebrand of The Uprising Spark, a digital platform that offers life coaching products and services for modern, independent, child-free women. Our aim is to build a strong female community and to connect empowered women around the globe. One of the co-founding non-mothers of Child Free Girls, Kristen, is here today because she has volunteered to interview me for this special episode of The Honest Upper, where I am being the subject of, um, you know, telling my story. And well, welcome, Kristen, and thank you so much. Now, you can take over from me. Go ahead. I'm going to try not to steer this interview in any direction. Good. I am really excited to do this because ever since first seeing your Uprising Spark website, I've, you know, I, I read the description of you and your history of uh, what made you want to do the, uh, the website and, and the help you want to give child-free women. And I've had questions because you obviously can't write your whole life story on a website. And so I've had questions about the stuff I read because I wanted to know more. And then after listening to your podcast, there were some things I wanted to know about too. So I have, uh, I have a list of questions. (laughs) I'm sure you do. (laughs) (laughs) And what I want to start with is kind of, uh, you know, not necessarily your whole life story, like where you were born and what your whole life has been up to this point. But in one of the interviews I listened to today that you did with uh, one of your podcast guests, you talked about you talked a little bit about life in Colombia and how it's violent, um, that you have dark tinting on your car windows because um, it just seems safer for no one to see who's in the car. So that made me want to know what it was like to, because I've never been to Colombia. I don't know how many of your listeners have spent enough time there to really understand what it's like to live there and to, to know it as well as you do. You, you mentioned in that interview I listened to, that tourists will go places that you know you would never go. So yeah. what was it like? What is it like there? What I mean, just what's it like? What's the environment? How scary is it? And what was it like to be a kid growing up in that environment? Were you allowed to go play or were you behind gates? Or Well, you know, it's an interesting question because in the past, so I'm turning 37 this month, April 2020. And I was born in Colombia and I was raised here. Um, I've been here most of my life, but it has changed dramatically. Like that whole atmosphere of how safe or unsafe it is has changed dramatically uh, in the past 37 years. When, when I was born, this was early 80s, all the way up until late 90s. The issue here was the, the drug cartels. 
So I'm sure everyone has heard about Pablo Escobar or the Cali cartels. If not, they've watched Narcos or something of the sort. There are many, many, um, you know, series and movies that touch on this subject. Many of them depict reality as it was. Many of them don't. Uh, I hate them. I haven't, I haven't watched Narcos or anything like that because I think it's, um, it's, it's a bit of a, an insult to Colombian people because we had to endure really harsh times. So at that time, you had to be aware of your surroundings all the time. Like you, could, like my parents were always wary of who I was hanging out with because a lot of kids that they're, I mean, whose parents were part of the cartels or drug dealers, uh, but not like the street, the, the alley drug dealer. No, I'm talking about like, you know, big bosses. They send their kids to my school. So they were always very scared. My parents were very scared who I was with, where I was. You could be caught at crossfire at any time during the cartel wars. They were putting bombs in like uh, malls and, you know, places where there were high influx of people. So it was a scary time in the sense that it could just happen anywhere at any time. And you just had to be very wary of who is it that you were talking to. In that regard, specifically, we were told to keep to ourselves a lot. So whenever you went out with your friends, you, you definitely did not engage with anybody else that you didn't know. So that was a very scary time uh, in parallel. So we had the cartels and in parallel, we had the gorilla, but the gorilla never actually came into the cities. They were in the mountains, in the jungles, in the countrysides. They were, um, they were leading their own uh, campaign wars and whatnot in small towns. So I wasn't never touched by that type of violence. And this, the gorillas are, I mean, you can trace them all the way back to the 1940s, 1950s, more or less. So, you know, even my parents had to live in, in a Colombia in the middle of a war. But the, the cartel thing was, was pretty much in, in the city. I remember when I was a kid, I used to live in like apartment complexes. So these were like buildings, but everything was... We were like a closed community, like a, a gated community. So you could only play with your friends in, inside the community. Like my parents wouldn't let me go out by myself. I was always with them. And then when I started going out with friends, you know, this is in my teens, maybe when I was 16, 17, going out and clubbing and uh, going to bars or whatever, um, they always were like, you need to be really careful who, who you're talking to and who, you know, who's paying attention. Uh, to what you're doing or not, because you never know. And then like the cartel thing, we still have issues with drugs and drug lords and yes, traffic, drug trafficking and, and all that. But after the cartels were dismantled, all these people that work for them kind of just dissipated in a, in a way, it just kind of atomized. So now that we have, we have like a bunch of little cartels and it's still going on, but it's not in the same scale that it was in the time when the Cali cartel was, you know, up and running. Pablo Escobar was still alive. It was a whole different era. So the tinting on your windows, what's the fear? You know, you said that you're, you're always looking around when you're outside, you're always very careful. And the tinting on your windows, what's the fear? What's the threat to you? Yeah. So basically what has happened is the guerrilla war caused a lot of people to move from the countryside into the cities. So most of these people are people who are illiterate. They, they're not educated, of course. They have been living from their land. 
and they were forced out of their lands and into the cities. So there's a lot of bidonville, I think you call them in English, like favelas, they would call them in Brazil, um, ghettos in a way okay. um, of people that come here with uh, not a single penny in their pocket and they start doing very menial work, which is really badly paid. And that has spurred in, in, in the bigger cities in Colombia that in many places there are like gangs and there's issues with, you know, just gangs and, and gang wars. And it has to do with drugs, yes, but it has to do with the, the fact that they come from poverty and that the government isn't giving them any opportunities to get, well, there are opportunities. I'm, I would be lying if I said there are not, like not a single one, there are, but most of these people will never see the day that they turn 30. You know, the, the, they will die before that because they, they kill each other and they're very young. You know, you see very young people involved in this type of um, violence. And what happens is many of these people have, have resorted to mugging and robbing. And what they do is if they see you in your car, like this is the reason why I have tainted windows. And most people in Colombia have them, even though it's illegal, you're supposed to have like a permit for it. Mm. But if they could, if they can see inside, if they can see a cell phone, if they can see you're, you're wearing jewelry, if you, they can see you're wearing a watch, they'll just point a gun at you while you're in a red light and make you open the window and give them your stuff. Like that happened to my mother, maybe this was like six years ago. And I've, I've, I know a lot of people who, you know, who have gone through this. And of course, it's really scary. Um, they will attack, especially women if they're by themselves or, you know, because it's easy, to, it's easy prey. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why I have tinted windows in my car. So, yeah, I mean, there, there is a lot of crime, basically just, you know, robberies and mugging. And there isn't a lot of uh, kidnapping like there was maybe 20 years ago. There was a lot of kidnapping uh, at that time, a lot. Um, now there's less, but what you're scared of now is that your life doesn't they don't see value in human life these people because they have grown up in such dire in such a dire situation like they've been surrounded by violence all their life that they don't care about dying they don't care about killing people your life is worth what a cell phone is worth uh if you don't give them your cell phone they'll kill you for it you know Mm -hmm. Uh, so you know it's it's scary and it does happen it happens every day and, and then the reason why I mentioned, you know, there's a lot of people that come here, uh, tourists, and tourism has really boomed in my country for the past few years. And I really admire these people because they are, they're outside like no, nothing's happening. You know, they're like, oh, Colombia is so great. And it is, it's, a, it's an amazing country. But sometimes I see them like go into places or do things that I'm like, I would not even fucking go <laughs> like near that. Like, there's no way. Well, they have no idea though. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, yes, I guess they do not have any any idea. But at the same time, if you ask them, they'll they'll be like, "Yeah, that was super fun. Like, I had a great time, or whatever." Like, they're not not only they don't have any idea; it's like they're completely oblivious to the fact. But also, nothing ever happens to them. Well, no, not that's not true. Some of them do run into trouble, but most of them are like, "Oh, you know, it was calm. It was nice. Like, nothing happened." And you're being, and you're sitting here to watch it, like looking at them going like, oh my God, dude, like you have like the guardian angel, you know? Um, yeah. So, but 
I try not to be a fear monger. You know, when I, when I meet foreigners and they're like, what do you recommend to do? And I'm like, you know, telling them what my favorite places are to come. Like Cali is not a very touristy city. There's not a lot of things to do in Cali other than learn how to dance also. But they're always like, oh, I, I want to do this and I want to do that. And I did this and they start mentioning things and I'm like, what, why? <laughs> <laughs> why? <laughs> but I try not to discourage them, you know. I, I guess I've done the same thing in other countries as well. So speaking of other countries, you spent some time in New York City. I spend a lot. I spend a lot of time in New York City. <laughs> I love it. I love that city. Yeah. How did you first come to go there? Uh, what like what what drew you spiritually to New York City, and what was your what was the cause of your first visit there? I've I've always been very attracted to the hustle and bustle of the city of of the multiculturalism of the the fact that you can get like authentic Italian food and then a block away you can get authentic Chinese food. Um, I love that it's like the epitome of a melting pot. There is something about New York City and it is iconic as a city. Like that's why in every single movie, New York City is the, the city that gets destroyed <laughs> or <laughs> aliens come and, you know, try to invade it or whatever. It's always New York City. The first time I was in New York City, I was maybe four or five years old. Um, I don't remember this. I mean, I do. There's one. If there's one thing that I remember about this trip was the fact that it was so hot. It was there and during the summer. It was so hot that I, me and my grandmother. I went with my grandmother. We were walking on the sidewalk somewhere in New York, and like you could see the water as soon as it touched the the sidewalk. It would immediately evaporate. It was so hot. That's the the memory that I have. And then I I like I was four or five. And then I it was just me after like I became a teenager. I just dreamt of New York. And then the 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 one time that I went there that I was like, wow, um, it was for work. It's funny. I was working for a company that is headquartered in Connecticut. So they wanted me to go there and I hadn't been in New York forever. Uh, since I was four or five. So I, I went to the city first before I, I took a train up to Connecticut. And I just fell in love with it all over again. And I just can't, like, I can't seem to get away from it. I'm always going back. I, I try to spend at least two or three months per year in New York. Um, yeah, I love it. Will you have an opportunity to live there someday? I hope so. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I do want to. Um, it's not easy, though, because it's never been easy for anyone from my country to legally migrate into the U.S. Like, unless you're a refugee or you are going, you know, requesting like an investor vi investor's visa, which mm -hmm. is, you know, it's a huge amount of money that you have to invest. So unless you're, you know, doing one of the other... Um, the other way would be like to get hired by an American company and then they would request the working visa for you. You know, it's just, it's that, or you go to, you know, study, do your master's degree or something, but it's hard. It's hard. And especially, uh, you know, Trump era has made it even harder for any foreigner to migrate into the U S. So for the, for the time being, um, I don't, I don't see it happening very soon, especially not now with this whole coronavirus thing. But it is, it is in my bucket list. I want to I wanna live in New York for, I don't know, at least a year. I want to be there for at least a year, like in the middle of it. 
<laughs> Maybe not in summer. <laughs> Maybe not in the summer. Yeah. <laughs> not with that memory. <laughs> but it, yeah, I've always been drawn to it. There's something, I don't know, there's something magical about New York. I mean, I know people are like, oh, I hate New York. I know many people who say that. I hate New York. It's just so busy and blah, blah, blah. But I love it. I think, you know what? I think what appeals to me the most is that you're completely anonymous. Nobody cares who you are. Like nobody cares what you're wearing. Nobody cares, you know, how, how many languages you speak. Nobody cares what your titles are. Like nobody cares about anything. You know, they're also consumed in, in their own survival, I guess. <laughs> they don't care. <laughs> I think I, my two strongest memories of New York are the first one is going to the wrong diner across from Grand Central Station and getting the worst pasta I have ever had in my life. I mean, it was just, it was like basically out of a can. It was just the wrong, the wrong quote unquote restaurant to go to. And I know there are a lot of good restaurants in New York. We were just starving and we didn't, we didn't yelp it. <laughs> and then the other memory is, um, I, I think New York is cool. And, you know, Ian and I were walking there one time and we came across just, we just ran into a big street fair of, with booths and vendors. And that was awesome. But then I think that same day we walked by a guy who's like muttering down the sidewalk, fuck New York. <laughs> I'm not surprised. <laughs> I think the the two cities in which I've seen the kookiest people in the, in like in my life has have been New York and London. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> and now one of the things that I've always been curious about since reading your website is you you explain on there that you reached a certain point in your life when you realized you needed to make a change or things weren't working and you basically revamped your whole uh, self. Something, something caused this need for you to make a change and to examine yourself. What was that? Well, I can think of at least two opportunities in which that has happened. But the one that was, I guess, um, the change was more noticeable. This was back in 2009. I had just come back from Paris. So I lived in Paris for three years. And when I was in Paris, I had a job. I had friends. I had a boyfriend. I had my life sorted in a way. I was having fun. I was partying. It was fucking Paris, you know? It sounds perfect. Exactly. This is my whole point. It does sound perfect, but I was miserable. I was absolutely miserable. And I made the decision, like, I just couldn't, couldn't take it anymore. And I just made the decision that I needed to come back home. Something was Why were you miserable? I don't know. Okay. I didn't know at the time. I didn't know at the time what was going on because on paper, my life was perfect. I was doing everything that any 20, I was 23 when I moved to Paris. I was between the ages of 23 and 26. Any 20 something would, would love to be on my shoes, you know, living in the city of lights and having a job and friends and partying and I mean, the whole shebang and, and also traveling because, you know, travel in Europe is so easy. You lived in Germany. So you know, oh, yeah. it's really easy. It's, it's everything's right there. It's very close. It's cheap. Mm -hmm. So I was living a, a great life on paper, but I was miserable and I didn't know why at the time. So I made the decision that I needed to come back, come back to see my family. And my parents had gone through a split. They have a weird relationship. I'm not going to get into that, but they had split up and then they had gotten back together. And when I came here, it was like, okay, I, I just felt that I needed to come back. Like I needed to be, um, have like a support 
system around me in a way. Like I needed to be emotionally held in a way, not like literally held, but just like have that emotional support around me. I needed that, but I didn't know why. And I needed to, I wanted to start finding out what it was that was broken, you know, about the whole Paris experience. Um, so I started going to a therapist and I started doing a lot of inner work and I came to realize very quickly that it wasn't Paris. It was me. <laughs> it was me. And my mom told me this, like before I moved to Europe, she said to me, if you don't fix your own issues, your issues are going to follow you to the end of the world. And I, I didn't know what she meant at that time. Then when I started, you know, digging in deep in what was that was making me miserable and, and understanding what it was that about that life that I didn't want and about just life in general. It was more about finding myself in the sense that I had been buried until un, under all of these expectations, you know, expectations from my family, expectations from society, expectations from my friends. And that wasn't me, that person that was trying to, you know, show all these people and, and prove to all these people, oh yeah, you know, I'm making it. Uh, this is what you wanted me to do. This is exactly what I'm doing. That wasn't, that wasn't me. So the reason I was unhappy is because I was living a life that wasn't, um, wasn't the life that I wanted to live. It wasn't, I wasn't being true to myself. You know, I was, I was feeling everybody else's checkboxes except mine. And it was, this was back in 20, uh, 2009 when I started doing this in a way. 2010, I would say was, I was more into it because I actually moved back here uh, in October of 2009. And it took me a very long time to just like unravel all that. And it's like onions, right? It has like a lot of different, like you start taking away from it, um, start peeling away from it. And then you, you discover there are more layers to it and you, you keep mm -hmm. on doing it. Like, yeah, exactly like an onion. And it took me a long time and I'm not there yet. I'm not going to say I'm perfect. I'm like, oh my God. I know myself so well, like, <laughs> no, I'm still <laughs> discovering things about myself every day. Um, but I think that inner work was something that, like, it was never instilled in me at home um, and I needed to do it. And I started very late. I mean, not really, actually. There are people who actually are in their 50s or 60s who've never done it. So I, I, I consider myself lucky that I was able to look at my life and say something needs to be fixed. And it, it, whatever needs to be fixed, it's inside of me. It's nothing around me, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's, that's what happened um, back then. That was the, the first in, like, inner dive. Um, and I've been doing it for, yeah, 10 years, a little bit over 10 years now. And um, like I said, I still, I still do it every day. You're listening to The Honest Uproar, a podcast where modern, child-free women share their life stories and where we discuss important topics for the kid-free community. And then what was it that inspired you to take what you'd learned and become a life purpose igniter? I was actually talking about this yesterday with somebody. Um, I've always felt really good helping other people even if it's just somebody coming up to me and saying, oh, do you know where this address is, you know? And it, it was part of me. It's, it's been a part of me since, since forever to be this person, this giving person, this person that wants to help others, this person that is willing to take a minute or five hours of my day 
to help other person or to, to make their life easier or, or happier, even if it's just a smile to, you know, somebody on the street or whatever. I have been working on, on corporate for a very long time. I don't dislike my job, but I always felt that that part of being able to, you know, that human part of being able to help other human beings was always missing. And I always wanted to do something about that. And, um, I went to, I'm a kite surfer in case, you know, the listeners don't know. I love kite surfing. And I went to a trip, a kite surfing trip. It was actually a kite surfing camp for women only in Morocco a couple of years ago. And I was talking to the girls about this who were just like exchanging ideas. Uh, A couple of them, actually half of them were health care providers. So it's a very interesting position, you know, being with people who are, have been always taking care of humans in that sense, you know, healing humans, saving lives even. So I was talking to them about this and one of them suggested, she was like, why don't you just like do a PhD on on psychology? Because apparently in the States, this is what I gathered from her. doesn't matter what you did with your undergrad. Mm-hmm. or your master's even, if you take, if you do a PhD on psychology, that's what um, gives you, like allows you to actually be a psychologist, like help people like clinical psychology. I think she, she said it was mm-hmm. um, because I didn't want to go back to start all over again. I didn't want to go back in Colombia. If you want to be a psychologist, you have to do it all the way from your undergrad in order for you to get your license. Whereas in the States, apparently it's just your PhD. So I thought that was interesting, but it was costly and it was going to take a very long time because a PhD is what, four or five years long. Um, Mm -hmm. And in the States, it's really expensive. So I'm talking to my shrink about this. I still go to the same therapist I, I, I met 10 years ago. And I was telling her, I was like, you know, this came up and I think it's a great idea. Like I want to do something else. And it was my therapist who said to me, why don't you look into life coaching? And I had heard about life coaches, but for me, the word life coach, I mean, the, just the term coach in that sense has been misused and is just, everyone calls himself a coach. And I mean, if you have the, the experience to back up what you're trying to teach people, I mean, that's great. I think that is what makes three quarters of a coach, but I still wanted to have some sort of um, I wouldn't call it formal education, but I did want to have some sort of, what would you call it? Something that training? is like, yes, training, like some sort of structure, I would say. I wanted to have some sort of structure, just not just do it like without having any tools for me to say, listen, I've been through this. I can help you because I know what, what you're coming from, you know? So I started training as a coach this was maybe two months after I came back from Morocco. I was like, yep, yeah, I'm going to do it <laughs> because I'm like that. I'm very impulsive, <laughs> stuff like that. So I started training as a coach with, a, it's a coaching school that has been certified by the International Coaching Federation. And my coach has a lot of experience. She has like 20 years experience. Um, my mentor, she coached me. And, and then like, I thought it was really cool because I did, not only did I, you know, got the structure that I was looking for and the tools that I wanted to be able to understand to apply them as well. But it was also a whole process for me. Like the whole process of learning how to be a coach was also a coaching process for me. 
So it was very, very interesting. And, and yeah, so here I am <laughs> after that, here I am trying to make a difference in, in child-free women's lives. I'm going to pretend that the word life can be used as a segue into my next question, because there's really no other way to go there. It's, it's a total non sequitur. Um, there was another interview I listened to in which you mentioned somehow in passing, and it didn't become a big part of the conversation, was that you had had a, either a, a death experience or a near-death experience or something like that. Yes? Yeah. I have to ask you about that because I have a, like many people, uh, when I hear those stories, I am desperate to believe them. I want to believe them. I want to not fear death. I want to think that there's something there. Um, yeah. And I want to know what it's like. What was it like? Oh my God. Uh, and what happened? Like what did it, what led to it? Was it a car accident or? No, it was, it was my tube tying operation. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I knew they were dangerous. I <laughs> know. They're, they're not supposed to be dangerous. So, no, I mean, it's a very normal procedure. It wasn't even during the procedure. Um, so I got my tubes tied in March of 2019, this was last year. And the day of my operation, the, so the days before that, you know, the uh, anesthesiologist will tell you, please don't take any medication on the day before the day of your surgery. I said, fine. I was taking um, metformin at the time. I I have like resistance to insulin. My dad is a diabetic. So I take metformin in the mornings. I didn't think much of it. I took that pill that day, that metformin. I took it before I I went to surgery. And mind you, I hadn't eaten anything in the past 12 hours or so. Surgery went well without a hitch. I'm in recovery. I'm already, my eyes are open. I'm breathing. I'm talking to my mom. I'm in recovery. But there was something else that I wasn't aware of. And it's the fact that I have an abnormally, well, not really abnormally because it is within the normal range, but my blood pressure is very low. So I was in recovery and um, I'm talking to my mom and I was, and then the doctor told my mom to go and like, grab me like a mango juice or something because I hadn't, I hadn't had anything to eat. I was feeling great. I was feeling amazing. I was like, it's done. I tied my tubes. That's it. No kids. And at the same time, I feel amazing. I wasn't feeling sick because of, you know, most people feel sick after they have surgery because of the um, anesthesia. I was doing great. Last thing I remember was I was looking at the monitor uh, that was, you know, with my heartbeat that was just beeping and it just went off. (laughs) And I knew something was wrong. And that's the last thing I remember in that moment. And then what happened is I just found myself in a place. I, I didn't see anything. It was just a feeling of just peace. I was at peace. It was so peaceful, so peaceful, Kristen. I can't even <laughs> start. You know, it's just, it's a feeling that I've never had in my life ever. Uh, it's like when you feel, when you have that certainty that everything's fine. like. Whatever happens right now, everything's fine. I was, I don't, I don't know where I was, but wherever I was, I was feeling very peaceful. Wow. Uh, when I started coming to, I don't, it was a few minutes that I was out. Um, they had to put uh, an injection of atropine, atropine on my, like I was, it's like they use it to restart your heart. So basically what happened is my blood pressure 
just started like dropping really fast and my heart like started beating at like a very abnormal low rhythm and it could have gone into like a, a cardiac arrest. So, you know, when I kind of came to, I, I was surrounded by like three doctors, four nurses, four nurses. One of them had those, um, you know, those pallets in, their, in her mm-hmm. hands, the ones to, <laughs> the pallets that they use in the ERs to like, you know, come back, clear those pallets. Um, and the, the anesthesiologist, he went to school with my dad. My dad's a doctor. And he was opening my eyes with his, and like tr- looking like he's... <laughs> putting like a light in my eyes and I could hear him say she can't die her dad's gonna kill me (laughs) her dad's gonna kill me if she dies she can't fucking die that's all I could hear him say and I'm just like what you know I'm trying to come back but of course I'm feeling weak and then okay the whole thing uh just after a while I'm, I'm feeling better my mom comes in. She's been crying her eyes out. I can see her face. She's been bawling. And I was like, mom, I'm fine. I, I was like, I'm fine. I'm fine. And I was feeling great. Like I said, I just, that peace, it was just amazing. Like the, the amount of happiness and peacefulness is just, I can't even describe it. But apparently I almost died because yeah, they had to restart my heart. Not with the palate thing, but the, the atropin. So that was my my dear next near death experience, but it was all because I wanted to tie my tooth. <laughs> and was it worth it? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> I would do it again in a heartbeat. <laughs> yeah. I only have one quick question about it, and it's because you know people will have experiences like that, or they'll be even more involved, or they'll be longer, or they'll see stuff. Um, and doctors, well, not doctors. I think there are some doctors who do believe that it is actually a. Uh, I hesitate to use the word spiritual because people can't seem to connect spiritual. They can't seem to not connect spiritual with God. But when I say spiritual, I don't mean God. I just mean some sort of existence beyond your body. But there are some, you know, there are a lot of um, people who believe only in the tangible and only what has been proven by our tiny itty bitty human minds. And they'll say, well, it was probably, you know, just some weird chemical reaction or, or maybe it was the drug they gave her, you know, and she just has all the timing messed up. Was your feeling, you know how you trust yourself I and mean, you'll get a, you'll get a feeling about something and you, you just know, you're just certain, like, I know what this is. I know you're wrong. You don't know what this is. I was there. Do you feel confident that when you do eventually die, that's going to be your experience? Oh, absolutely. I, I don't, I can't even start explaining why or how, because like you just mentioned, you have to be there mm-hmm. to, um, you have to experience something like that to understand. And I remember the interview that I did um, in which I mentioned this because the person that I was interviewing, she also had a near death experience. So we were both like, and you felt this. Yes. Like, and like, we were just like, sort of like comparing notes in a way mm-hmm. <laughs> like to feel peaceful. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> uh, there's, but there is indeed something inside of me that is absolutely certain that when I die, because there's always, I mean, human beings with, we fear the unknown. And of course, dying is one of our biggest fears because we don't know what's beyond that. And I, I was always very fearful of it. I remember having nightmares when I was a kid I think it was, uh, one of my uncles had passed away. I think this was more or less around the same time. 
And I kept having recurring nightmares of me or my parents dying. And I just woke up like screaming in the middle of the night. And I always had been fearful of that. And it was more like, what if I'm in pain? Like, you know, but now after this, it was, there is a certain, certain, there is a certainty about the whole thing that I can't say exactly what it is. I'm not gonna, you know, theorize about what happens after we die. But what I can tell you is I'm not afraid of that anymore. And my grandmother passed away in September. And this was a very painful experience for me, just losing her. But at the same time, because of what I had gone through in March of that same year, with this you know, experience that I'm talking about, it was like, I just know that she was, I knew that she was okay. You know, I knew that she, wherever she was, she was at peace. And I knew that, I don't know why I feel that I, I'm going to get to be with her again someday. That was actually going to be my next question was if it made, um, not that you could compare the before and after because she only died once, but you know, if, if you don't have the experience you had, you have one perception of death. And then if you've had the experience, you see it completely differently. So I was going to ask if it was at least some, um, you know, it would be nice to know or to have some certainty that, that you don't have to worry or that, or that even that you have a sense that they are somewhere, because I think it's important to know that they're still somewhere in some way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I can't, it's, I have not had any close relative pass away before my grandmother, like my two uncles passed away. Um, one of them, I was very young to really understand what was going on. The other one, he, we weren't close at all. And he passed away after being missing for, well, he didn't pass away after being missing. Like he went missing and at some point he passed away, but he had been missing for six years or seven years when we found out he had passed away. Wow. Um, we haven't, I hadn't, I didn't have a, a tight relationship with him. And then I have another uncle on my dad's side. Uh, he passed away as well. Complications of diabetes, but we weren't close either. So all these deaths that I had experienced before, I didn't process them like an, like an adult would in the sense that first I was a kid for the first one and for the other ones it was like, yes, it's sad that they passed away, but I wasn't close to them. And I was sadder for my, my dad or my mom, you know, because they were, you know, my dad's brother or my mom's brother who had passed away. Mm-hmm. But me and my grandmother, we were very, very tight. So I can't, com- I couldn't be able to say, yeah, it made, it's made the whole thing different because I don't have the experience of the before. Mm-hmm. But there's also one thing that helped with my grandmother. And it was that I, I went to visit her. It was maybe two weeks before she passed away or three weeks before she passed away. I went to visit her and she knew she was going to die. Like she had that certainty and she knew it was her time and she was tired. She was old. She said to me, I'm going to leave you some of my gold jewelry. And I was like, where are you going? <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> why are you going to move? <laughs> um, I didn't want to face that reality. But she said to me, well, she looked at me and she said to me, I'm not, I'm not afraid to die. You know, I'm, I'm going to be okay. And she's, 
she's a, one of the few 80 something grandmothers in Colombia who wasn't religious. Like she wouldn't go to mass. She wouldn't be, you know, praying her rosary every night, like many, many old women in this country do. She was actually reading books about metaphysics. And, you know, my grand, my grandfather used to be a Mason and it was like the whole concept of universe for them, which is completely different and very outside of, you know, her generation. So she was very avant-garde in that sense. Um, and because she wasn't feeling scared, I think that also helped me a lot to um, process her passing. And have you had any experience? I'm sorry to stick on this death thing. I'm just so curious. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> in, uh, in a conversation, you and other child-free girls, non-founding, wait, non- <laughs> Found, founding nun mother. <laughs> we were having a little. There were there were some jokes made about people playing tricks on you after they die, and I just wondered if you had had any experiences or communication, that, or that you anything you would consider communication from your grandma since she died. Well, the two days or three days prior before her death. She, she lived in an apartment that was on the fifth, fourth or fifth floor, I can't remember. And there was like a balcony. There was a very big green area outside of that balcony. Um, and they has like, it had like big French doors. And what was happening is that a lot of bees were coming into her apartment and dying there. Like they came in to die in, in my grandma's apartment. <laughs> and this was three days before she died, two days, one day, like the day before she died, bees were still coming in. The day she died, bees stopped coming into her apartment. And this is what? very rare. I know. I mean, it was, it was just, it was strange. And it was also very rare in the sense that bees normally don't come to die to people's homes, right? Um, I don't know where bees die, <laughs> but it's definitely <laughs> not coming what? through. I would just go to someone's house. <laughs> <laughs> like this is the place this is a good spot <laughs> yeah yeah I know exactly um so that was that was very odd um and a few weeks ago like I, I miss my grandma every day like I think about her every day I know she's watching over me there's I just have that certainty and a few weeks ago um my dog he he likes to play with bugs like we get some bugs in our balcony as well but we never get bees and I could just see him like watching something on the floor. He wasn't even like attacking it or sniffing it or nothing. And it was a bee that had come into my house to die as well. And, you know, like I said, this doesn't happen. So I just took it as a sign from her that, you know, that she's here in a way. Other than that with her, I haven't had any other experiences. I've had other experiences with the dead, but not my grandmother. See, how can you just say something like that <laughs> when there's only so much time in your podcast? Someday I'm going to ask you about that, but I... <laughs> we'll just leave that for volume two. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess what I would say in closing is the bee story uh, with the bee coming onto your balcony to die. I, I love that you are an optimist, apparently, and that you saw that as like a, a hello instead of your next. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was definitely a hello. 
That would scare the crap out of me. <laughs> oh, you're next. That's really, I hadn't even thought about it. That's, that's really Oops, dumb. sorry. <laughs> that's very bleak, Chris. <laughs> if there's a pattern, I'm just saying. Yeah, that's true. I'm sure it was hello, though. I think I, it's because I have the fear and you no longer do. So I think that's why we see it so differently. Yeah, probably. Well, Isabel, this has been a wonderful interview on your own podcast. Yeah, it has. I'm really glad we did this. <laughs> thank you for allowing me to come on to ask you questions. Well, thank you for coming and asking the questions. <laughs> Curiosity satisfied, except until volume two. <laughs> <laughs> we'll leave that question for volume two. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thank you for listening to The Honest Uproar, a podcast where modern, child-free women share their life stories and where we discuss important topics for the kid-free community. We hope you tune in next week for our newest episode. And since we love hanging out with you, please be sure to follow us on social media at The Honest Uproar and visit our website at thehonestuproar.com. If you like what you heard, feel free to share with your fierce, child-free firecracker friends. Until next time, Continue fueling your inner fire.